Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hoves. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And today we are going to be continuing our virtual journal club uh, idea or podcast idea. Uh, and we're going to focus on knee pain. Um, obviously, knee pain being a very large uh, cohort of patients and really big topic. But we're going to talk about uh, kind of three different ways of addressing uh, knee pain that is kind of at various stages of... Um, the degenerative cascade uh, or intervention cascade uh, for knee pain. Um, so, Dr. K, you want to introduce our first uh, topic or article? Yes, and so we will um, we will be discussing kind of three different uh, treatment approaches uh, to the um, to the to the treatment of a significant chronic refractory uh, knee pain. Uh, not not just in the setting of uh, you know, refractory knee osteoarthritis, but also um, in the uh, in the situation where individuals have undergone surgical intervention, um, obviously including a total knee arthroplasty, and they still are dealing with significant uh, symptoms and impairment in function after after that treatment. The uh, first article that we wanted to discuss is an article that addresses um, treatment of NEOA prior uh, to uh, any, sur- uh, any uh, knee replacement uh, surgical intervention. So this would be looking at uh, platelet-rich pra- plasma and uh, hyaluronic acid. Um, so the, uh, the title of this article was uh, Platelet-rich Plasma versus Hyaluronic Acid, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of uh, Randomized Controlled Trials. It was uh, done by Dr. Beck uh, and his colleagues, and it was published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine um, in uh, recently in April of 2020. So, um, just like we've done with the <coughs> with the prior studies, uh, we will give a little background in terms of the uh, the treatment itself prior to uh, reviewing quickly the results of the study. So. Uh, I chose to focus on platelet-rich plasma here for a couple of reasons, including that, you know, uh, based on this systematic review, as well as the majority of the evidence that we have up to this point in time, it does uh, appear that platelet-rich plasma uh, seems to be relatively um, a better option in terms of improving uh, symptoms, function, and overall health of of the patients uh, dealing with knee osteoarthritis. Um, So focusing on uh, Playwright's plasma or PRP. What what is PRP? The definition of PRP. So uh, PRP is defined as a volume of the plasma component of autologous blood with a platelet concentration greater than average. Uh, so therefore, essentially, PRP is a concentrated solution of autologous uh, platelets. And just as a, a quick background, and I point this out to show that um, we have done a great job as a uh, medical community in terms of uh, working to uh, further our understanding of PRP, uh, but we, like many aspects of medicine, we you know continue continue to work to further optimize our understanding of this because it is such a, a complex uh, treatment. So uh, to emphasize and to demonstrate that, so platelets contain three types of secretory uh, granules. Uh, including alpha granules, which we hypothesize to play one of the major roles in the release of growth factors, which we'll talk about, plays such an essential role in the therapeutic mechanism of action of uh, PRP. But we have not just alpha granules, but dense granules and lysosomes as well. And uh, these secretory granules uh, uh, release greater than 3,000 uh, bioactive proteins uh, uh, from when, when platelets are activated. And so that 
I just uh, emphasize that to show, although we have specific growth factors that based upon the uh, basic science work that has been done, um, uh, we know or we hypothesize to play a major role in the therapeutic effect of PRP. Uh, I just want to emphasize that uh, number of 3,000 bioactive proteins just to demonstrate that there's a lot of work that we're continuing to do to understand the uh, the mechanism of action of PRP. So as I mentioned, alpha granules are thought to play a major role in the release of the known gro growth factors that are hypothesized to play a major role in tissue repair and healing. So once the PRP is injected and the platelets are activated, the alpha granules release uh, these growth factors, including but not limited to PDGF, uh, TGF-beta, IGF, and VEGF. And these uh, growth factors uh, work to promote uh, tissue repair through multiple mechanisms, uh, which we could you know spend an entire talk on. But uh, these mechanism, mechanisms include, but are not limited to, cell proliferation, cellular chemotaxis, uh, angiogenesis, cell differentiation, and uh, extracellular matrix synthesis. The uh, it's important to know with uh, PRP as well, and and I bring it up because the study does address the differences as well. But it's important to know that there are different classifications of PRP based on the number of leukocytes as well as uh, fibrin content. So uh, those different classifications include uh, leukocyte-poor PRP, which essentially is a low number of leukocytes and a low fibrin density. Uh, the second type being leukocyte and platelet-rich plasma, which has a high number of leukocytes and a low fibrin density. The third type being pure platelet-rich uh, fibrin, which is a low number of leukocytes and a high fibrin density. And the fourth being leukocyte and platelet-rich fibrin, which is a high number of leukocytes and a, and a high fibrin uh, density. Now, the reason that's important is because the uh, different preparations of PRP seem to have uh, different uh, therapeutic values depending on uh, what we're treating. Um, and as we'll uh, point out as we move now to the results of this uh, specific uh, meta-analysis. For example, in this study, the leukocyte-poor PRP seemed to be associated with significantly uh, better um, uh, improvement in terms of the uh, outcomes for the patients with knee osteoarthritis. So now turning our attention to what the results of this uh, study uh, was. So the purpose of the uh, study obviously was to systematically review the literature to compare the efficacy and safety of PRP and hyaluronic acid for the treatment of knee osteoarthritis. Ultimately, they included 18 studies, which uh, were all level one evidence studies. 811 patients underwent intraarticular PRP injection in the review, and 797 patients underwent hyaluronic acid injection. And the average duration of follow-up was about uh, one year at 11 months. And the outcomes included the WOMAC scores, the uh, VAS pain score, and then also subjective international knee documentation committee scale score. And their major findings were that the uh, improvement in the WOMAC score was significantly higher for the PRP group with a 44% uh, improvement compared to a 12% improvement in the visco supplementation group. And they also found that PRP, uh, uh, when looking at the VAS score as well as the International Knee uh, uh, Committee uh, uh, document, Documentary Committee scale score, there was also significant improvement in the PRP group relative to the visco supplementation group. And then the last major finding from that study was what I had, what I had just mentioned, and that's why it's important to know uh, what uh, formulation of the PRP we're utilizing because the leukocyte-poor PRP was associated uh, with a significant improvement in that uh, subjective um, <laughs> subjective international need doc documentation committee scale score. So 
uh, as always, uh, Dr. Hovis and I want to kind of uh, comment in terms of, you know, how this would impact um, our uh, clinical, uh, just, you know, to offer some uh, um, uh, considerations in, ter in terms of how this study would impact our clinical um, uh, uh, consideration of patients. And so, I, you know, I think for me, I, uh, in the past, I think I did, when I first came out of training, um, I think I did use uh, a fair amount more of the hyaluronic acid, f you know, for multiple reasons. Obviously, one of the biggest things with PRP is the difficulty, uh, uh, since it's not covered by insurance, um, you know, work comp occasionally, but uh, for the most part, it's, it's largely an out-of-pocket uh, cost, whereas um, hyaluronic acid, I've had a little more success uh, uh, getting approved uh, by insurance companies, and so I think um, uh, initially, clinically, I was I was utilizing hyaluronic acid more, but as the data grows, especially for that, and I think that's something that Dr. Hobes and I will comment on, is you know the different uh, subgroups of patients and how we look at it. But for that, for that younger patient with uh, with uh, significant uh, knee um, pain due to uh, uh, knee osteoarthritis, whether that's secondary due to prior trauma or if they had to have a meniscectomy, uh, whatever the case may be, that younger patient who's not really looking for or not a great candidate for uh, a, a knee arthroplasty, um, I think that's where PRP really becomes uh, most attractive to us because of the evidence behind it. Yeah, and so uh, for, before we kind of get further into the discussion on this particular study, <laughs> let's take a step back. You gave a lot of uh, information on platelet-rich plasma. Um, didn't talk a lot about hyaluronic acid. Um, and so hyaluronic acid currently is the standard of care for uh, injectables after you know one to two doses of steroid into a knee um, for mild to moderate uh, knee arthritis. That is, you know, before going for uh, total knee replacement. Um, Hyaluronic acid came out in, I think, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so a lot of the studies uh, that were done were uh, early in that time. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of working on one of those studies um, before medical school. Uh, and so it was, it, it has been the standard of care for a long time. Hyaluronic acid is essentially the, um, the native fluid that fills uh, the knee uh, before it goes through some of the degenerative changes uh, that it goes through. Uh, and so essentially, uh, the theory is that you re replenish the, the native fluid and bring it back uh, to its uh, non-degenerative state with that fluid and therefore can hopefully uh, decrease a lot of the inflammatory markers and um, other aspects of the degenerative cas cascade that start to fill the knee uh, over time. Um, I think some of, if my memory serves me correctly, some of the early studies showed that by the time people had mild to moderate knee arthritis, the uh, percentages of hyaluronic acid in the knee went uh, decreased to somewhere between 40 and 60% uh, when um, at, uh, a, a naive young knee uh, is uh, quite close to, I think it's actually close to 100% hyaluronic acid. So it's to re re return to its native state. Um, and so this has been the standard of care for 20 years probably at this point uh, for injectables uh, into an osteoarthritic knee. Um, and as Dr. Carvella said, over probably the past decade, um, people have started to look at the data for platelet-rich plasma and the data has slowly started to grow. Um, but as Dr. Carvella has already brought up, currently viscosupplementation or hyaluronic acid is the standard of care. It is what's covered by insurance. 
um, and therefore con will continue to be the standard of care as long as that's the case because platelet-rich plasma is not covered by insurance and not all of our patients uh, can afford to pay out of pocket for um, a procedure even if we feel that it might be a superior intervention. Um, and so that's a little bit more of the background on hyaluronic acid and kind of where we are in 2020 in terms of looking at mild to moderate uh, knee arthritis before arthroplasty uh, and trying to help uh, this. We have done a, a podcast more uh, looking into uh, that osteoarthritis gap um, and so I would encourage you to go back and look at that, that podcast for a deeper dive. Um, but I mean, essentially what this meta-analysis shows is that as we've been collecting data over this past decade for uh, interventions with platelet-rich plasma, the data now is actually quite significantly better than the data for hyaluronic acid. Um, I think the counter argument would be that what formulations of hyaluronic acid were they using because were they, are they comparing it to those studies that were done in the early 2000s um, versus you know some of the newer formulations, the newer things that have come out over time, which probably didn't actually have quite as much literature behind them because it was already an approved product. Um, and so I think that would probably be the counter um, from somebody who is a hyaluronic acid believer um, or at least you know follows that accepted algorithm. Yeah, no, uh, uh, great insight and I really appreciate um, awesome information. And I think uh, Dr. Hovez and I probably have similar approaches. Just as a, a, a quick review, you know, if, if we have a patient with, um, you know, mild to moderate osteoarthritis and, you know, again, prior to uh, surgical intervention, I think, you know, like, like we've always emphasized, we think about lifestyle modifications. Obviously, weight optimization is so uh, critical with uh, NEOA. We think about um, uh, bracing. Uh, we think about, uh, obviously, physical therapy with strengthening of the quad. Um, we think about topical medications. Um, and then from a procedural standpoint, just like Dr. Hovis brought up, I think my, in my head, uh, we, we may try one to two steroid injections with the goal of trying to break the pain cycle and uh, allow them to really optimize their physical therapy. After the steroid injection, if that's failed, um, that's when I would consider the utilization of uh, visco supplementation versus PRP. And I think my algorithm previously, especially when I first came out of fellowship, was one to two steroid injections followed by visco supplementation and then PRP if it was practical, uh, you know, if, if it was possible, feasible for the patient uh, due to the uh, potential financial uh, limitations. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, move on to the next article. Um, if you want further in-depth on specifics for knee uh, workup and treatment uh, or on uh, regenerative medicine, please go back and listen to some of the older podcasts. Um, article two, what we got? Yeah. So for the second article, the title is The Effectiveness and Safety of Genicular Radiofrequency Ablation for the Treatment of Recalcitrant uh, Knee Pain Due to Osteoarthritis. A comprehensive uh, literature review. This was uh, performed by Dr. Tate and colleagues. And uh, as always, all these articles uh, will be uh, present uh, in the show notes. Um, but uh, uh, this was <coughs> published in Current uh, Physical Medicine Rehabilitation Reports uh, in September of uh, 2019. So uh, again, before we uh, dive into the exact results of the study, uh, just as a quick um, background. So... <coughs> um, for genicular radiofrequency ablation, as we all know, 
Uh, chronic knee pain is uh, uh, very common. Studies demonstrate a lifetime prevalence of about uh, 45%, and a lot of uh, epidemiologic studies will show that uh, over the age of 60, around 10 to 20% of adults will uh, be dealing with uh, significant symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. And uh, as we just kind of brought up, we know that the symptoms are uh, not uncommonly refractory to conservative measures, including the lifestyle modifications, physical therapy, bracing, medications. Um, and there's also a significant number of patients that experience ongoing symptoms uh, uh, after uh, total knee arthroplasty. So uh, studies demonstrate persistent pain in up to 40% uh, of patients, um, uh, and that pain is characterized as severe in about 15% of those cases uh, based on uh, some of the literature that's out there. So uh, what radiofrequency ablation is, it's defined by the delivery of energy uh, produced by an alternating current uh, to neural tissue, and therefore, modulates or inhibits that target nerve's ability to transmit pain signals. Um, it was uh, first described as a treatment option for chronic pain in the 1960s and now has many different uh, techniques and applications, uh, including for obviously chronic neck and low back pain uh, that we've uh, discussed in the past and obviously is uh, commonly uh, employed. Um, and there's growing evidence for the ut utilization of radiofrequency ablation for uh, chronic knee pain. So uh, keeping in mind that radiofrequency ablation includes um, uh, both uh, uh, cooled radiofrequency ablation as well as uh, pulsed radiofrequency ablation uh, in addition to the, uh, um, uh, uh, the uh, thermal radiofrequency uh, radio ablation uh, up to 80 degrees uh, Celsius. So there's different, bottom line is there's different approaches to the radiofrequency ablation. And this also has expanded the clinical utility uh, of, of this treatment. The, um, speaking of those target nerves for the knee itself, the innervation of the knee is very complex. So the genicular nerves uh, or the sensory nerves to the knee arise from three major nerves, the sciatic, femoral, and obturator. The sciatic nerve itself divides into the uh, tibial and common peroneal nerve, and the tibial nerve gives rise to the supramedial and uh, inframedial genicular nerves to the posterior aspect of the knee, and the common peroneal nerve contributes to the superior lateral genicular nerve to the anterior portion of the knee joint. And I bring those nerves up for a few different reasons. Um, number one, because uh, although there is significant variability in terms of what exact nerves are targeted, the um, the uh, superior lateral uh, and the superior medial and the uh, inframedial uh, nerves are the uh, common, uh, I would say the majority of literature uh, targets those nerves in terms of uh, performing radiofrequency ablation uh, for chronic uh, knee pain. But the other reason I bring up the, the genicular nerves uh, arise from you know not just the sciatic but also the femoral and obturator is uh, to demonstrate that there are uh, other um, there are other nerves that supply sensory innervation to the uh, knee joint, and <clears throat> that's important because there's uh, there's studies out there targeting those different nerves, and uh, as a consequence, um, there's a significant variability. Um, in terms of uh, when we look at the total outcomes of radiofrequency ablation for knee pain, there's, there's variability in exactly how those uh, procedures were performed and what nerves exactly were targeted. And we're still working on optimizing exactly which uh, nerves uh, to target. So um, 
Now, moving on to the exact results of this uh, study. So the, the uh, conclusion of the study was that radiofrequency ablation is an effective treatment option for patients with refractory chronic knee pain due to osteoarthritis, with the research studies overall demonstrating up to 74% of patients obtaining greater than 50% improvement in symptoms at six-month follow-up. They concluded that the procedure is relatively safe but not without risk and uh, need to continue to work to optimize uh, an understanding of the risk as well as minimize the occurrence of uh, potential uh, negative outcomes. Um, and uh, also that, you know, just like we do prognostic blocks for the lumbar or cervical spine, um, further work needs to be done to demonstrate the utility and the necessity of the prognostic blocks for these uh, genicular nerves. Um, so the, the, uh, going back to what we had brought up in terms of the, uh, uh, the different uh, nerve supply to the knee and uh, taking, to, taking into account that we also know that there's uh, anatomical variation from patient to patient. And uh, they, this uh, article um, brings up the uh, concept of uh, other studies, including uh, a study by Dr. Conger and colleagues that was published in Pain Medicine in uh, November 2019 that uh, proposed a novel technique to improve safety and efficacy uh, given that what we had just brought up, that a lot of cadaver, uh, cadaver studies um, demonstrate this significant anatomic variation of the, of the location of the sensory nerves to the knee joint. Um, uh, as, as well as um, the fact that the ones that we are traditionally targeting are not the only nerves uh, supplying, uh, supplying sensation to the, to the knee. So uh, clinically, in terms of you know, how, we, how uh, I, I would um, apply these results, so I, you know, I think genicular uh, radiofrequency ablation treatment is a very attractive um, a treatment that I think can do a lot of good for the uh, symptoms and health of our patients because, you know, it's a it's a treatment option for uh, patients, uh, especially if they've undergone you know uh, knee arthroplasty or had uh, revision or multiple revisions and they are really running out of treatment options to uh, treat their pain. It's another um, opportunity for us to have a positive impact on the patient, and it's a relatively low risk uh, procedure. Um, uh, you know, looking at this study as well as other studies that are out there, I think one thing that's very attractive to me, to me personally, is using uh, ultrasound and uh, utilizing pulsed radiofrequency ablation. And I feel like through the use of ultrasound and through the use of pulsed radiofrequency ablation, not only can we better identify exactly where those nerves are, are traveling, um, we can avoid other structures, uh, including the vasculature, vascular structure, especially if the patient has not had a, a knee arthroplasty yet, um, and in those settings, the compromise of the vascu uh, vasculature may uh, have more significant adverse outcomes. Um, uh, but uh, bottom line, yeah, with the ultrasound and pulse radiofrequency ablation, I feel like that's a way to uh, modulate the sensory nerves to the to the knee um, uh, in a way that's uh, um, uh, minimizing risk uh, to the patient as well. Yeah, and so I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways that we can. Um, discuss further about the genicular nerves and the genicular nerve radiofrequency ablation um, technique, um, you know, target which, which nerves to target, uh, etc. But the main takeaways from the study are, I think, that, you know, there are a lot of patients that, you know, especially the uh, post-total knee arthroplasty patients that continue to have significant pain and can 
receive pretty significant benefit uh, from a, a procedure such as this. And so, you know, for something that I think a lot of people, you know, maybe even as early as three or four years ago hadn't even heard about, um, you know, it's a procedure that can help a lot of our patients. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, just like we brought up and as Dr. Hovez emphasized, you know, and unfortunately is the situation for a lot of our chronic pain patients. This is a therapy that when uh, patients have undergone, you know, multiple uh, interventions, like we said, potentially multiple surgeries, uh, you know, this is something we can, we can consider to try to have a positive impact on their lives with. Yeah. The, the last thing we wanted just to bring up uh, fairly quickly here, um, because this, this is an area that definitely uh, is growing and so not quite as much uh, uh, research currently, but the idea of using uh, peripheral nerve uh, stimulation for uh, chronic knee pain. And so there was a recent uh, case series that was uh, presented at the uh, American Academy of Pain Medicine in 2020 in February with Dr. Ho and his colleagues, uh, Dr. Ho being from Stanford University. And essentially, it was a case series of five patients. Four of those five patients had undergone a prior uh, total knee arthroplasty. And the patients were treated with uh, peripheral nerve stimulation targeting the infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve. And essentially, their um, VAS scores were monitored. And uh, prior to the treatment with the peripheral nerve stimulation, they had an average score of 8. And then uh, uh, post a treatment at 6 months, they had a score of 1.4. And this was maintained at uh, 2 years with still a significant improvement with an average uh, VAS pain score of 2.75, again, compared to that uh, pre-implant score of 8. And so <clears throat> um, a couple things from this uh, study. Just number one, bringing up the fact that they had uh, targeted the infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve. So going back to what Dr. Hovez and I had brought up in terms of um, continuing to work to uh, uh, optimize exactly a standard, standardization of what nerves we're uh, targeting for uh, genicular nerve treatment, um, and then obviously the exact modality that we're using. But, um, you know, in this study, uh, they, they took advantage of the fact that the saphenous nerve has a significant uh, innervation uh, to, the, to the knee joint itself. And then, you know, obviously peripheral nerve stimulation is attractive, you know, similar to the idea of pulsed radiofrequency ablation being that it's a non-destructive um, uh, form of therapy where uh, we're uh, utilizing energy in a positive way to modulate uh, pain signals uh, without having any um, uh, significant negative impact on the neurologic system itself or other or surrounding tissue. So that's a peripheral nerve stimulation has always been very attractive to me f uh, for that reason. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, this is, you know, one of the case series that's been reported. There's been a, a handful of other case series. Um, you know, hopefully more of the literature continues to develop uh, in this field. I mean, peripheral nerve stimulation is still relatively young in, in the field of uh, neuromodulation with, as the technology has continued to progress, uh, we are finding more and more utility uh, for that technology. And so uh, knee pain, chronic knee pain uh, has been one of the ones that uh, has been explored uh, pretty extensively. And I think we're gonna start hopefully seeing some uh, more impressive uh, studies coming out as opposed to just uh, case series. Um, so things to, to look forward to, but you know, three different options for three different stages of uh, chronic knee pain for our patients. Um, you know, hopefully uh, that was helpful and uh, not necessarily too much of a uh, uh, in the clouds, in the dirt, uh, scientific perspective. But you know, when Dr. Carvella starts going, 
He likes to talk. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Appreciate your time and uh, hope you have a good rest of the week. All right. And as always, send us some more information. If you guys have uh, ideas for the Journal Club or for other uh, podcast topics you'd like to hear, we'd love to hear your feedback. uh, And please stay tuned for those legal disclaimers. Now for that legal disclaimer. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.